0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: Holiday plans for millions of Britons were thrown off course this week as Portugal was taken off the green list for travel and questions were raised about the final easing of lockdown.
0: There isn't anything yet in the data to say that we are definitively off track. But it is too early to make the decision about the 21st of June. Welcome
1: to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be discussing the chaos around holiday travel, and whether the data on coronavirus has taken a turn for the worse, as you heard from the Health Secretary Matt Hancock at the top. Will Brits have to holiday at home this year, and will all domestic restrictions be eased on June the 21st? Health editor Sarah Neville and chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley will discuss. And later, we'll be looking at the Whitehall row over funding for children's schooling after coronavirus lockdowns. Why did Gavin Williamson receive almost a tenth of the funding he'd hoped for? And what does it say about this government and the Treasury's mindset? Education correspondent Beth Statton will discuss along with economics editor Chris Giles. Sarah and Robert, welcome back. Thanks, Ed. Morning, Zeb. So I'm in the very lucky or sort of like guilty position of someone who made a very quick trip away to Portugal. So I've had my slight fill of a European holiday, but I have to ask for both of you with the news this week. Is it going to be a holiday at home or do you harbor any ambitions, Robert, to still get abroad this summer?
2: Well, actually, we'd already decided we'll stay within the UK this year. But the one fly in the army is one of the family was due to go off to Mallorca with mates for a week just before we go to Scotland. So we're having to juggle the thought of delaying because it might still be an amber list country by then. But we thought a while ago it might be better to stay at home this time.
1: And what about you, Sarah? Because there is this interesting thing, and I know lots of people are mulling this over about whether to still attempt a break if it's on the amber list or whether just to say it's all too much hassle.
3: For me definitely too much hassle I was very envious of seeing your pictures from Portugal on Twitter Seb but as far as I'm concerned for the whole of this year I'm just going to be a a spectator in terms of foreign travel I'm not planning any foreign
1: trips until 2022 and I think given the uncertainty lots of people will probably follow in that mindset well let's move on to the main topic of the week Just last week, the mood in government about coronavirus was upbeat. Ministers were hopeful that the final easing of restrictions in late June would go ahead and more destinations would be added to the green list to allow Brits to get away for holiday and be reunited with their families. But all that was thrown off course as ministers decided not to expand the list of countries it was safe to travel to, spooked by concerns about the Delta variant of coronavirus plus a new mutation. Transport Secretary Grant Shapps told the BBC the government was taking no chances. In the end, we've seen two things, really, which of course concern. One is the
2: positivity rate has uh, nearly doubled um, since the last review in Portugal. And the other is that there's a sort of Nepal mutation of the so-called Indian uh, variant, which has been detected, and we just don't know the potential for that to be a vaccine-defeating mutation, and simply don't want to take the risk as we come up to the 21st of June uh, and, uh, and and the review of the uh,
1: fourth stage of the unlock. So, Sarah, the overall picture of the coronavirus in the UK in some ways, it's very positive that this week we've seen some incredible numbers on the vaccination with 75% of adults having their first jab and over half of adults having both jabs. And of course, the vaccines are all highly effective against all strains of coronavirus. So people will be saying, well, why does some concern arise? What has spooked people in government?
3: I think one of the rather scary bits of information that we got this week in the latest report from Public Health England is that the risk of hospitalisation with the Delta variant is about two and a half times that of the so-called Kent variant, which we now call the Alpha variant. And you could see that in the really sort of eye-wateringly large percentage rises in the numbers being hospitalised as well as the number of infections. Now, of course, there's a much more positive side to this, which is what Chris Whitty described a few weeks ago as a great wall of vaccinated people. And there's very encouraging news when one looks at the data in terms of the very small percentage of people who've become infected with the Delta variant who've had two doses of the vaccine. I think it's something like 3.7% of those who've become infected, have had those two doses. And indeed, some of those, I'm sure, wouldn't yet have had them sufficiently before contracting the infection that they proved effective. So in fact, the data may be even better than it looks. So it is very finely balanced, as we've constantly heard both politicians and scientists saying this week,
1: Well, Robert, the key thing that seems to have spooked ministers is that new mutation you heard Grant Chapps talking about, and there was some confusion because this first entered the public domain through a Daily Mail front page that said this new Nepalese variant would mean holidays wouldn't happen. And as Mr. Shapps clarified, it's actually a mutation of that Delta variant that originated within India. And again, there are concerns this could prove more vaccine resistant and that could be a problem. And it seems the people I spoke to in Whitehall, we suggested that the registration of some of these cases in Portugal was the reason they wanted to move it from the green list to the amber list. But it does seem to be maybe an abundance of caution, do you think? Well, I think Sarah's laid out the issues around it. It's very clear that of the tests that the government set out
2: to be met for the continuing evolution of its roadmap to reopening, one of those tests will not be met because there are variants of concern that worry people about which they don't have enough information. The others still look, as you say, in the balance or veering towards the Side reopening. The precise link between the increase in cases and corresponding increase in hospitalizations has not yet been made, although we've got another week or two to see because I think these cases do take longer to spread through. I do also think the government will want to have explanations beyond we're still worried if it is going to in any way draw back from the reopening, which I think is certainly possible, at least in part. And I think, therefore, new variants, new information, things that we didn't know before are quite useful arguments if you are in any way going to stop short of the full reopening
1: that people are currently expecting. Now, when we look at the travel situation, Sarah, we've got this Traffic like system that's caused so much confusion. The green list, the amber list, and the red list. Red list means you have to hotel quarantine for 10 days. The amber list means that if you go and the foreign office generally advises against it, you've got to quarantine at home for a set number of days before taking tests before you can get out. And if you're on the green list, then you have to do again a series of tests before you go and while you're there. But ultimately, you are allowed to go there. And Portugal was the main holiday destination. I think thousands of British football fans went there last week again to see the Champions League final. But that was taken off and Portugal is not very happy about it, nor are millions of holidaymakers. From what you've seen looking at the situation, do you think it was the right decision? This entire situation around this traffic light
3: system, I think, has been immensely confusing and difficult for people to navigate. The idea that a country, for example, is amber, which sounds as if one can go you know it's not prohibited it's not read but then we get the message actually you shouldn't be going to an amber country so we've talked many times on this podcast over the last year or so about the lack of clarity in so much of the government's messaging and I think it's been particularly evident in the communication around the countries that it is and is not safe to travel to
1: now yeah, Robert. In terms of where we head next and the politics of the final stage of easing, we, the reporting we did this week said that Boris Johnson wants to move heaven and earth to keep the June 21st target of removing the final restrictions, which of course is quite ironic cause I think the Prime Minister's has always said it's going to be data, not dates. And yet he seems to be very focused on dates based on people George and I spoke to this week. What's your view on whether the 21st of June is going to go ahead? Because I'm sort of pretty split. It feels 50-50 to me at the moment that the government will want it to go ahead if it possibly can. But we've also heard that ministers have been discussing a two-week delay to July the 5th to give extra time to do extra jabs and build that shield, that wall of immunity Sarah was talking about.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it is split and I don't know which way it will end up, though I completely agree with you that the Prime Minister certainly would like to press the button on June 21st, if it's at all possible. They do have options. The delay, as you say, is one thing. They could implement some of the 21st relaxation, but not all of them. They could say, well, maintain a bit more social distancing or keep masks. There are ways they can still reopen a bit more while not going as far as was intended. And as you say, if they can just blitz the vaccine through a bit higher, then maybe they will still feel okay about this. I mean, from a pure political point of view, And setting aside the data and health considerations, there are a couple of things here. One is that the Conservative Parliamentary Party really hasn't got much of a stomach for much more delay. And they have given Boris Johnson you know, a fair win now because of the vaccine success and because of election victories. But I think they will be unhappy if they start seeing more delays. and They will worry that they could linger on and the health establishment as they see it is just preventing the country returning to normal. There's also the other issue attached to this, which is that If one is looking for causes for the delay, it will be about the Indian variant. And the prime minister has a degree of culpability here in not locking down flights to and from India far earlier than he did. And so what you don't want after a period in which the prime minister's own status has gone up, people feel he's handled the pandemic well, primarily because of the vaccine successes, you don't want anything which impugns that success. So there are good political reasons for not delaying. So I think it's gonna have to be pretty
1: clear cut evidence that we have to before the Prime Minister accedes to it. And I think that's the key point, Sarah, that a lot of the mess we're in right now is because the government dithered on putting India on the red list. And we know that this was due to the eagerness of Boris Johnson to go out to India to try and strike a trade deal with Modi, which has been a key aim of his government, I think it's been widely criticised that if the UK had moved earlier, then fewer cases of the Indian variant would have been brought in, they could have been more isolated, and we would have been in a much better position. So it feels like with this travel announcement this week, and the feeling that the June 21st could be delayed, it's the government again sort of acting very hard, but too late.
3: Yes, and in a way, actually sort of confirming Dominic Cummings' criticism of the way Boris Johnson has handled this entire pandemic, consistently lacking the stomach to take the really tough decisions, the politically awkward and unpopular decisions. So one of the things we're going to find out, I guess, by June the 14th, this date, when we're finally promised that we will get clarity on the reopening, is whether he has learned some caution whether actually he is going to handle this next phase of the pandemic differently and i think there is clearly a very respectable argument to be made that one should just delay two or three weeks really try and boost the number of people who've not only had that second dose of the vaccine but have had it sufficiently uh, long before the reopening that it actually is a fully effective because certainly the AstraZeneca vaccine can take 4 to 5 weeks for full
1: immunity to kick in. And then finally Robert just a bit of politics and all this as well we've started to hear from some conservative MPs who have been very skeptical of lockdowns you think of Mark Harper of the Covid Recovery Group and Sir Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee of backbench Tory MPs, they've all been out and about saying we absolutely have to go ahead on June the 21st. Now, there's no parliamentary votes here. So how much influence is this actually going to have, apart from speaking to the prime minister's more libertarian instinct?
2: I think throughout the prime minister has been wary of those people in his party who have always resisted the lockdown. And we know that he was pretty resistant to it himself. I think one difference now from maybe at Christmas is that his own position is much, much more secure, whereas at Christmas people will begin genuinely to question his stewardship of this crisis. I think because of the vaccines, he's in a much, much stronger place. His opinion poll lead is very, very substantial. Party is nowhere in particular at the moment. So I think he's got a fair tailwind politically to do what he wants to do. And I think if he were to decide that he had to delay People, A, know, partly because of the Dominic Cummings evidence, that this is done with great reluctance and therefore the reasons must be substantial. But B, particularly if he's delaying for only a little bit, then I think he has the political capital within his own party to carry it off. So I don't think it's a major problem if it's limited, but if it becomes more and more substantial and the delay keeps receding into the distance, then it will become a problem again. But for now, I think he's all right.
1: Robert and Sarah, thank you very much. One of the most pernicious effects of lockdown has been its impact on millions of schoolchildren across Britain, who have lost out on their education, many at a crucial stage in their lives. The Johnson government has promised to do everything possible to help them catch up. That was, except offer significantly more funds. Kevin Collins, who was presented as the government's education commissioner on post-COVID studies, has argued £15 billion was needed for a recovery fund. But this week, the government offered up just £1.4 billion, or £50, per pupil per year. So Kevin resigned, and Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, told the BBC's Today programme that more money is going to be required. I have no doubt that in order to be able to deliver everything that we have ambitions for for our children, uh, there will be more that is required. So Beth Statton, welcome back to the podcast. Let's begin with the background. What is this recovery fund and why is so much money required?
4: So obviously during lockdown, schools in England and the rest of the UK were closed for quite significant amounts of time. And the learning loss that's resulted from that is estimated to be about around three months on average, but it's going to hit disadvantaged children even more, which will of course have knock-on consequences for social inequality, and also for the long term economy of the UK, that the IFS has estimated that the long term impact on lifetime earnings for children now could be around the sum of kind of 350 billion pounds.
1: And of course, obviously, pupils have missed out for months, and if not totally up years of education here. And some of it is needing just more time in schools. You know, what exactly is the government's strategy here before we get into the issues of this funding round? Like, does it have a comprehensive plan to catch up on the missed out education?
4: The government's plan very much at the moment centres around tutoring. They've rolled out a national tutoring programme, which is kind of boosting tutoring organisations and giving schools money to hire tutors for, again, targeting more disadvantaged children. What Kevin Collins wanted was... A slightly more holistic programme, which was more about, as well as tutoring, extending the school day to allow both extra time for kind of academic catch-up and also things like music and sport and drama and kind of well-being for children. That's the bit, that kind of extra time ask that the government basically said no to. They're very much behind getting extra tutoring, but the extra hours in the day was more of a question mark.
1: Well, Chris Strauss, there was one person in the government in particular who said no, and that is the Chancellor Rishi Sunak, that it's been made quite clear from various briefings in the media this week that the chancellors felt that the case hadn't been made for this extra sum of money. And there was also concern that by extending funds to extend the school day, that would actually become permanent. So why do you think the chancellor fundamentally didn't want to go along with these big money requests made by Kevin Collins?
0: Well, I think one of the things that we always have to remember, it is the Chancellor's job to say no to spending requests from spending departments. And uh, he has performed his job as he would be expected to do at the moment. But why it's so unusual at the moment is because in pretty much the rest of the COVID crisis, uh, the Treasury hasn't been saying no, it's been saying yes. So this is the first time it's really put its foot down and said, no, actually, we want a proper process here. We don't just take the word of one person, Sir Kevin Collins, as to determine what is needed. We need to know what the natural rate of catch-up is in schools, which we don't know yet. Are the kids going to just catch up naturally? Is there a problem for certain groups, particularly disadvantaged groups, where I think the real focus of concern is? And all these questions haven't actually been answered to anyone's complete satisfaction yet. So they're saying, let's do this in the round, let's do this in the spending review in the autumn, any money will flow from 202223 that financial year. that's the treasury's position. Of course, the other side says, well, that's too late because that will mean really it won't be till autumn 2022 when the money will actually flow into schools, and by then, if people have sort of dropped out, it might be too late to get them back. So it's a genuine dilemma, I think, you know what is exactly the level of loss? How much would the money really make up? And if you start spending the money. As we all know, once you're spending money, it's much, much easier for people to keep hold of the money, as we're seeing in areas like universal credit. I'm not saying we shouldn't be giving the money to universal credit, but it's hard to say no once you've started spending the money. Treasury is well aware of all of these facts, and so it's put its foot down.
1: Well, I think one person who expressed that unhappiness was the Labour Party's Kate Green in an interview with Channel 4 this week.
3: I find it really depressing that the Treasury is prepared to put children and young people last in the queue when it comes to spending on the Covid recovery. They really ought to have been the government's top priority. And I think that the proposals that Sir Kevin Collins has made really ought to have been at the heart of the government's strategy.
1: Well, let's look at Gavin Williamson's role in all this, Beth. Do you think he wanted more money? I think that clip we heard at the top from the BBC suggested that he did and that he was disappointed. But the education secretary is in quite a weak position. I think across the cabinet, he's seen as being having probably the worst crisis of anyone having mistakes over schools returning, over testing in schools, the exams for last year. And there's a widespread expectation that come the reshuffle, which we're expecting to happen later this summer, he will probably get moved out of that job and possibly even moved out of the cabinet at all. So his weakness was on display this week because he couldn't say to Rishi Sunak or Boris Johnson, if you don't give me the extra money, I'll resign, because they will say, okay, well, goodbye then.
4: Yeah, exactly. And we all know that Williamson hasn't had a great year. It's obviously been really infuriating for a lot of educators to see him fail to kind of push this through. I do believe that he would have really fought for it. But as you say, he's in a really weak position. I think also one of the things to remember for Williamson is that he does have ambitions for his role as education secretary now. And that very much lies in skills reform, vocational training, and and kind of boosting that area of the education sector. That's an area that I think Sunak and Johnson also really, really strongly back. It's notable, I think, that A sacrifice has been made apparently in school spending. We'd be wise I think to see what's going to happen later down the line in the spending review for skills as well. There's already been quite a lot of money committed to that and perhaps the money is a limited pot.
0: One of the things that I think we have to remember in education for later this year is that we're almost certainly going to have another debacle over exam results. I know this very personally both. I have two kids, one's getting GCSEs, one's getting A-level results this summer. And the real problem this summer is that every school is going to work out its grades differently. So there'll be absolutely no comparability and a huge amount of grade inflation, I would have thought. And schools that have been tough will might feel a little bit like chumps come August because other schools will, I'm sure, have uh, given some very big grades. And it would be probably better not to have a new education secretary in post at that time. So you might want to leave Gavin Williamson in post at least to have to deal with that impending disaster which I think we know is coming. And Chris do you think this route has a whiff of the Marcus
1: Rashford free school meals to it which was that Boris Johnson was told not to get into a fight with the footballer and eventually the government did U-turn on free school meals and even gave Marcus Rashford a gong for his campaigning efforts. Based on the reaction this week you mentioned the spending review later this year do you think it's just a matter of time before more money is put forward. And if that's the case, then why didn't they just do it in the first place to avoid a week of bad headlines and that perception which the Labour Party has hopped on, which is that the Treasury doesn't care about
0: pupils? I do actually think it's just a matter of time. I think no one really disputes that there is a problem here in schools and that more money will be needed. I think There is a genuine question about what the priorities are, what's going on. But honestly, we're not going to get good answers to exactly how much money is needed, probably for a few years, because you'd have to do the research, by which time for the kids involved, it's too late. So in a situation where we are spending a lot of money and borrowing one-off money for many aspects related to the pandemic, it does seem odd that this is the thing that they've chosen to say no about immediately, even though, come the autumn, I'm sure more money is likely to be given, and I just don't know. I mean, I think internally it'd be interesting to know: had they, you know, if they gave one and a half billion, if they'd given five billion, would that have not led to such terrible headlines with Sir Kevin Collins resigning, or would it have taken the full fifteen? I've got no idea, but I think that might have played a part of that. If they, if they knew he was going, or whether that came as a surprise to them, whether they thought they could get away with it and miscalculated just as they did. With the Marcus Rashford affair, that's a very good question, isn't
1: it, that It was the fact that the number seems so small—one billion versus fifteen billion. You know, if they'd simply put a bit of extra money, do you think Chris has a point that actually people could have said, "Okay, well, that's a decent amount of money"? And then, you know, and I think it was that fact, that stat, that was doing the rounds—fifty pounds per pupil per year—when you translate it like that. And I know it's never a good way to look at policy making. You can understand why people feel as if their promises to look after kids have been abandoned.
4: Yeah and and when compared to other spending the Eat Out to Help Out scheme for example it feels like it shouldn't be a huge and painful outlay to spend 15 billion over 3 years for kids and and also i think one of the things that really stings for educators is that Collins was hired as an expert and there was a lot of good feeling generated when he was appointed he was really seen as very highly respected in the profession, and there was a sense, you know, the government are really serious about this. They're listening to teachers and to people who really know their stuff on catch up. So, for his his recommendations to effectively be rejected, it feels like a bit of a disappointment, even after um, such a disastrous year in education. And then
1: finally, Chris, obviously, there is something just quite interesting about where the Tory orthodoxy is on all of this, because you mentioned that the Treasury has been just pushing out money out the door as quickly as possible throughout the pandemic. And I guess there's two schools of thoughts on this. One is that they've broken with the orthodoxy of the past and you've got a prime minister who loves to spend money, and that's going to be the new norm. And have just got to hope that interest rates don't tick up and the debt power starts to get problematic. Or it could be it was a temporary thing and we're going to revert to something much more like what we've seen before in terms of limited spend by the Conservative government. And of course, that will allow Labour to come along and say, well, actually, you spent during the crisis, but you're not spending during the recovery. And they've sort of given away the principle. Where do you see that argument landing?
0: I think ultimately, this government will want to be seen as prudent with the public finances. Now, what that means in practical terms is highly uncertain at the moment. But the public finances at the moment look a hell of a lot more robust than they did at the time of the budget only a couple of months ago in March. And if that progresses all the way through the forecast for five years, so we actually the scarring, the long-term permanent effects of the crisis are much smaller than the independent watchdog, the Office for Budget Responsibility thought, which is what most people think right at the moment that these things can change, then you've got a bit of a windfall in the public finances. And I think the Treasury is, is aware of this. It knows this. It doesn't like people mentioning there's quite likely to be a windfall in the public finances because all that does is create enormous demands for extra expenditure from all quarters. And it doesn't want to be seen to be giving in now just before the negotiations over the spending review get going. But they don't want departments to think there's a huge pot of money out there because then they are be doing a lot more saying no than they already have done. Beth and Chris, thank you very much for joining
1: us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then please do subscribe. You know where to find us, all the usual channels on Apple, Spotify, Google, and your smart speaker to see if episodes as soon as they're released. And if you're in a good mood this weekend, you could leave us a positive review and a nice rating. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineer was Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening.
4: Selling a little or a lot?